go. We're rolling. Okay, just let. Uh, we are. Let me just check levels for a sec. Mobile phones are switched off. Wait until the song is completely at an end. Fascinating talk on. Really free, and you don't need to book, so I hope you may be tempted. To... Hello, I'm Benedict Nelson. And I'm Mark Stone. And together we are The Recital Room. Welcome back uh, for this podcast, uh, which is about, Mark... Uh, It's about some Elizabeth Kuhlman songs by Schumann. Who in Christ is Elizabeth Kuhlman? (laughs) Well, uh, that's a good question, because actually I don't think anyone else has set her. And she she did write a lot of poems, but she died at the age of 17. It's quite astonishing how much she wrote. Wow. Um, How many? Give us a number, Mark. (laughs) I need a number. Don't give me the number questions. Um, Thousands. Yeah, thousands. Although, actually, Schumann said that, that, that of the thousands that she wrote, uh, the ones he chose, that were seven, um, were the only ones suitable for setting to music. Oh. No. Um, although this is a lie, because he later set some, um, some duets and quartets set to her music as well. So, well, silly either, sausage. Either they were unsuitable or he was just he was being silly. Silly. He picked her out of oblivion um, and tried to champion her cause, didn't he? For, uh, so who was she? Well, she was a, a Russian girl um, and she was from quite a large family. And these, these, poems are, these poems are in German, right? Yes, these poems are in German. And that was possible because she had mastered 11 languages by the time she was 15, including Latin and Greek. Can I just say, I hate her already. <laughs> Me too. I haven't mastered one. Um, <laughs> and, she, and she translated all kinds of poets into, into German. Um, okay. She did all of Anacreon, Greek poet, the tragedies of Ozerov and Milton, she translated... This is this really is annoying. She's an annoying woman, and all the, all the more strange in the nineteenth century for there to be a, a female poet who's been set because they're rare. Yeah. But for there to be a female poet at all, um, mm-hmm. because this kind of education and mastery of language didn't come to many women. Um, Do you think because Schumann um, was was married to such a, a prodigious talent? Clara Schumann, do you think that that meant that he was unusually open to um, feminine talents? Yeah, I think I think that's probably fair. I mean, I think I think it was just uh, part of the times that women weren't considered perhaps as creative. I mean, I know when Schubert set some songs by uh, a woman um, <laughs> whose name temporarily <laughs> escapes you. Well, it should escape me because he he published them as being by Goethe. It was Marion von Willemer and Schubert published them and they were originally uh, said to be by Goethe, which gives you an idea of how maligned female talents were uh, at the time. And then, of course, you've got George Eliot, who wasn't really George. She published under a pen name as a man in order that she might be more widely syndicated and better received. So this was, uh, this was uh, you know, breaking with the norm to dedicate himself to making Elizabeth Coleman more well-known 
than she was. He wanted to do a portrait of her life with these seven songs. And so in between all of the songs, he wrote small biographical notes. And naturally, they're quite short because, tragically, she died at the age of 17. And what was her family her family background? Uh, she had a, a German mother and Russian father. Um, the father died quite young, and the whole family were thrown into poverty. But her wonderful mother encouraged her obvious natural gifts to earn them some money <laughs> yeah yeah to earn her some money um which i don't think worked but it certainly earned her enough fame um yes. although you know she's not very well known of now and it's only because of Schumann that perhaps we've even heard of her so quite how he was drawn to her is a bit of a mystery but he certainly took a real shine to her um and Schumann remember was the son of a, a bookseller uh and so had a great interest in literature anyway so it's no small thing that he really found her poetry fascinating and, and he's really quite, he waxes rhapsodical about how great her poetry is in these biographical notes. Actually, when I did a, a um, one of Graham Johnson's Schubert's lectures, sorry, Schumann lectures, uh, he produced various books which were possibly from Schumann's father's shop of, of translations of, of Shakespeare into German. So he, Schumann would have been very much up for anyone that produced these sorts of works. Yeah, and his early championing of, of people like Jean-Paul showed that he had very specific tastes that didn't always go with the grain at the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously he set Heiner and Goethe as well, but um, and Eichendorf, who were all big names at the time. But his his decision and his desire to promote lesser known poets um, was one of the one of the interesting things about the poets that Schumann picked. And he he was also very keen with these things to bring a different musical style to all of them in order to properly reflect the person he was setting. So he really, the poet was a big thing to Schumann. It wasn't just, they weren't just vehicles for his music. And it's, and it's interesting you say the poet rather than the poem, uh, because it's with these, with these texts specifically, it's very much about her and her life, isn't it? Yeah, and I think, I mean, I think particularly with these poems as well, that they're, they're inextricable from her life. I mean, just shortly before her death, she wrote a poem about her own death. Did it, did it end dot, dot, dot? That <laughs> was a little ellipsis yeah. mid-sentence. Mid <laughs> um, but, yeah, Schumann had a, a feeling that she had a a rightful prominent place in German literature and although he didn't achieve that her memory has been kept alive by these songs and it's an extraordinary life the interesting thing as well is that she died in 1825 and that was the same year that Schumann's sister died um, uh. now, interestingly she she um, committed suicide we think by drowning and it was a big it was a big thing for their family and a big shock. It seemed that she'd suffered from some kind of mental illness, which, as we know and as we'll find out more later, ran in the family. And mm -hmm. Schumann almost never mentions her in letters uh, and diaries and things going on. So you can read into that what you will. Either he just didn't care um, and forgot about it instantly, or... He cared too much. 
could have cared too much. That's right. Mm. It was such a uh, such a, a deep wound that he found mm. it difficult to talk about. And I think he he took pity on her orphan status, the fact that she was orphaned so early. Schumann lost his own father when he was relatively young. So there's a lot of parallels yeah. between his own experience. Interestingly enough, Schumann um, was growing ill at this time as well, and that led a lot of people to say that his later works were somehow tainted by his mental illness, and that perhaps his championing of this poet who lots of people just didn't regard as highly as Schumann did. It led a lot of people to sort of think, oh, this is a product of his mental illness. Uh, Eric Sams writes that exactly that. He says that these songs are basically a product of the fact that Schumann was losing his mind at this point. And I, for one, think that's unfair. So, I mean, sorry, Eric Sams is saying that these aren't good songs. He says they're not good, and not only hmm. goes further than that, he says that the way uh, that Schumann talks about this poet is obviously a sign of mental decline. I'll submit to our listeners uh, and to you, Mark, as to whether, <laughs> that's, to, to whether that's true. I think they're wonderful poems, and I think they're all the more extraordinary, written by a girl who had only just reached puberty and managed this prolific outpouring of literature and in mm. 11 different languages, uh, which she'd mastered. Um, I think it's extraordinary and a wonderful achievement. I think the poetry is great. But who am I to judge the great Eric Sams? <laughs> <laughs> I'm me. I'm Ben. When did Eric Sams ever do a podcast? Exactly. I mean, the the other thing to get the other thing to consider, of course, is uh, I I don't doubt that that uh, Schumann's. Um, heightened stroke decaying mental state affected his output as an artist but who is to say that it affected it in a detrimental way that's very true I mean Schumann it's now um, considered was probably bipolar um, mm. although it went undiagnosed because such things weren't properly understood and known about at the time and one of the symptomatic things that's often described about bipolar is that it prominently affects quite a lot of creative people and that it's uh, it's connected with bursts of creativity. So, in other words, when people are in more manic states, they're more likely to produce more art, more 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 works of their chosen field. And this is this is attested to with lots and lots of examples. And it's it, it's not. I, I don't think it's counterintuitive to suggest that people in a sort of heightened level of energy might have bigger rushes of inspiration, make more connections between things, and produce quite unexpected and brilliant pieces of art so it's although Schumann switched between the two I mean we know in 1840 he produced this unbelievable flurry of songs wrote nearly all the songs he ever wrote in 1840 and that almost certainly was during a period of mania where he mm. was able to be exceptionally creative so you're absolutely right I mean there's nothing to say in fact there's everything to say that a mental state directly influences the way people write but not necessarily for the worst and these were these so the, the the big part of Schumann's songwriting was around the 1840s. These were written sometime later, weren't they? The, yeah, the, these were these were written, I think, 1852. Okay, 51 right? maybe. Th these were written in 1851. <laughs> Good choice. <laughs> um, uh, and this was this was uh, only only a few years before 
his suicide attempts, um, which we should okay. talk a bit about now. So from it, in the early 1850s, he took up a job in Dusseldorf, and basically things things went a bit awry. Um, what was the job? Uh, he was the sort of muni- municipal director of music. So there was there was basically <laughs> just, a sort of. You say did the bins? <laughs> so I'm sure that was part of the uh, <laughs> part of the job, probably. I mean, it's hard to know whether he was just bad at conducting, perhaps. But it seems that he became more and more erratic as time went on, and uh-huh. um, he lost the faith of the the orchestra and the chorus there. And eventually, he was kind of ousted by another conductor there and he was fired late in autumn 1853 but that that was also the year in which he spent lots of time with the the violinist Joseph Joachim and um Johannes Brahms, who oh, yes. we met that year, who we've talked about before, and he recognised his genius immediately and um, became a huge champion of him. So it was, you know, it was swings and roundabouts for him a bit this mm. year, and that probably led to a, a bit of mental instability for him. It, when winter 1854 came along, uh, so the end of 1853, beginning of 1854, he started to get quite dramatically unwell. He started hearing voices, some of them very pleasant angelic kind of choirs and things but others occasionally sort of tigers and hyenas and things um, oh god uh, i hate so, it when that happens <laughs> yeah so you know he he started to um started to become quite unwell and also you know in during his conducting before he was fired he started to hear these things while he was working um and apparently his tempi went all wrong which is what happens to most conductors when they get yeah, <laughs> they start hearing voices. They start hearing voices and their tempies go wrong. Apparently, by 1855, he believed that his watch was going too fast. <laughs> um, that's that's how badly his his idea of time had got. Um, but also, I found this interesting. During this sort of period of 1853, he he got really into a craze going on at the time called table rapping. Okay. Um, which isn't like... Hip-hop. Know, it's not like hip-hop, no. Um, it, it's people all sit around a table... And it's like a seance. They all sort of hold hands around the table and they ask questions to the underworld, to the other side. And the, according to raps on the table, like knocks, it would, it would be communicating so messages clearly, from the dead. Clearly someone's doing it with their knee under the table, yeah? I think, yeah. Um, or there's all kinds of, uh, you know, things with Ouija boards and things that people subconsciously mm. do these things. But knocking on a table is quite... I mean, it's quite a. Con- I can see how people together might move a glass across the table, but rapping on mm. a table. I mean, that's quite. Come on. Anyway, Schumann was like, almost with childlike. You just at attach this. a castanet to your knee. And... <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, someone was toying with them anyway. Um, but this became a bit of a craze over Germany, and Schumann, with childlike enthusiasm, was drawn to the the whole thing. He found it fascinating, mm-hmm. and apparently, at one point, he called up the ghost of Beethoven and asked him to play out. Um, Beethoven's fifth, and did he? He probably didn't say Beethoven's fifth, though, did he? He, he probably, said just, said he probably just said your, your fifth. <laughs> play that one that goes, and it did. Apparently, the, the, the sort of he said slowly at first, but then unmistakably came. Oh my! Hang on, uh, I just heard something. Did you hear that? 
That's that's <laughs> that's extraordinary. He said uh, apparently he called out and said, "I'm sorry, Maestro, but that that's a little slow." Which is <laughs> it's, a bit, it's, it's a bit always presumptuous. tempy with him, isn't it? And a, apparently it then played it at Schumann's preferred speed, or else it was just saying, <laughs> "No, it is not." Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, in English, that'd be yeah, weird. Prob- probably in English. Just Beethoven's a show off, as we know. Composing <laughs> while you're deaf. Goodness me. <laughs> so, I wonder if he ever tried to speak to Elizabeth Kuhlmann. It's interesting. Maybe he did. Yeah, but he did. Um, I suppose you. I suppose you'd try everyone at some point, wouldn't you? Yeah. It's just sort of hard to communicate people with knocks on the table. I don't, I don't know how this is with Morse code or one for yes, two for no. Four for Beethoven's fifth. <laughs> Interestingly, though, in 1853, in that autumn, there was another sudden burst of creativity. And he wrote loads and loads of works. And one of the symptoms of bipolar, again, is that huge, huge outpourings of manic action are then followed by a huge downturn and depression. Mm -hmm. So at the beginning of 1854, um, it seems that this is is what happened with Schumann. And one February morning, Clara left the house, uh, presumably to see if there really were any tigers or hyenas outside. Um, <laughs> just to double check. Um, and not knowing that that would be the last time she was going to see him for nearly two years. Um, mm. And when she'd see him just in the days before he died, because Schumann left the house and went to the bridge over the Rhine in his dressing gown and threw himself in. Well, in a... be thankful for small mercies. Because <laughs> it could have been worse. <laughs> yes, that's true. That's true. But he, yeah, he had the wherewithal to get dressed. Um, yeah. uh, sort of. And uh, threw himself into the Rhine and was pulled out by some fishermen. <laughs> Catch of the day. <laughs> <laughs> um, we've got a composer. Um, <laughs> so they, they pulled him out of the river and he was escorted home sobbing um, through a, a crowd of people celebrating a local carnival which must have been pretty harrowing I mean they assumed he was part of the revelry and he of course was greatly haunted and disturbed at this point and he was then committed like the, the, the picture of that is, is, is like bipolar in a, in a snapshot isn't it basically yeah and of course it's you know it must have been disturbing and it's strangely poetic co- coincidence that one of his most famous works was Carnival. Yes, yeah. Um, so then he committed himself voluntarily to a mental asylum in Bonn where he spent the last few years of his life, was forbidden to write music um, because they felt it would be bad for him, bad for his mental state, and was denied the opportunity to see Clara and she was denied the opportunity to see him until his very last days when Brahms took her and he saw her for the last time. So these Coleman songs were among the last songs he wrote. Should we? Okay. Should we? Should we read them? Yes. So the, I mean, the interesting thing, saying that that they're very much about her life as as much as they are about poetry. When he wrote the songs, he included biographical details. That's right. With them, because didn't he? It, because he wanted this to be a portrait of 
this uh, this extraordinary girl's life. He mm. he wrote a, a small dedication at the beginning of Vidmung, and then in between each song provided biographical notes. It's not clear whether they were intended to be spoken during a performance, but uh, on Graham Johnson's Hyperion disc, he he does but has to have someone read them out in between. And so I thought in between you reading the text of the songs, I would hear read uh, translations of the dedications in between, um, which you can refer to as you listen to help you better That's understand good. the life of this extraordinary girl. So that means you've got to stay awake whilst I read out the translations oh, for a change. No, it's tough. Uh, um, <laughs> okay, uh, so, you, so you're going to start then? Yes, I am. So the dedication that comes at the beginning, Vidmung, goes... Es sind diese schlichten. Es sind diese schlicht. No, I'm not. <laughs> You're not going to read it in German. No, are you? I'm not going to read it in German. Of course, I'm not. Um, <clears throat> the dedication goes: These unpretentious songs are dedicated to the memory of a girl who departed from us long ago, and whose name is known to very few. And yet, she was one of those wondrously gifted beings who appear only very rarely on earth. The most sublime teachings of wisdom expressed here with the utmost poetic perfection come from the lips of a child. And it is in her very poetry that we read how her life, spent in quiet obscurity and the greatest poverty, became richly happy. These few small songs, chosen from several thousands, of which only a few lend themselves to composition, cannot give even an approximate notion of her character. Though her whole life was one of poetry, only a few moments from this rich existence can be selected. If these songs could help introduce the poetess to many circles where she is still unknown, their purpose will have been fulfilled. Sooner or later, she will certainly be greeted in Germany too, as she was 30 years ago by some in the north, as the bright star which will gradually shine forth across every country. So the foreword to the first song is, The poet born on the 17th of July 1808 in St. Petersburg lost her father and six of seven brothers at an early age, the last in the war of 1812-14. Only her mother remained to her, whom she cherished with the tenderest love up until the end. The following is selected from numerous poems to her. Mourned, meine Seele Liebling. Dear moon, why are you so pale? Is one of your children sick? Did your wife, the sun, come home unwell? And you stepped outside to cry? O oh moon, I have the same problem. My mother's sick, and I'm an only child. While she's asleep, I snuck out for a break. You comfort me, knowing I'm not alone. Although a German immigrant who wrote in German like a native language, the poet is a fervent patriot. In countless places, she praises the beauties of the northern skies. The following poem is an example of this. Viel Glück zur Reise Schwalben. Good luck on your journey south, Swallows. I'd like to join you and see the wonders of every country, but I would always return to my homeland. Oftentimes, inconsiderate children would mock her for her poverty. The following song is an answer to this. Du nennst mich armes Mädchen. You call me poor girl, but you're wrong. Drag yourself out of your slumber and see my lowly hut. In the morning sun, its roof is golden. At sunset, its windows sparkle with jewels. A song from her earliest girlhood perhaps written even in her 11th year. Her poetry from this time contains such charming naive works by the hundred. Truth is reflected everywhere, out of the depths. Der Zeissig, 
which uh, translates as siskin, which apparently is a type of bird, which I didn't know. Did you know that, Ben? I didn't know that. Apparently it's, uh, I mean, I've, I've got here, the translation I found is the, the cheeky bird. Cheeky bird. <laughs> you cheeky bird. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it's May, child. Throw away your school books. Come outside and sing with me. Let's compete in song. How often in her poetry she concerns herself with her passing, as if in a vision. With powerful love she clings to this world, her flowers, the glowing stars, and the noble people that she's met in her brief life. But she senses that she must soon leave them behind. Reich mir die Hand, Olvoka. O cloud, reach out your hand and lift me to heaven where my brothers are. I'd know them, even though I never saw them, for they'd be with our father. They beckon me to them. O clouds, lift me quickly. A poem full of dark foreboding of death, likely from her final year. Next to her cottage, she had a little garden where year in, year out, she cultivated flowers. A poplar grew nearby. Die letzten Blumen starben. The last flowers have died. The fair rose is at rest. You, noble Dahlia, do not raise your head. The high poplar has lost its leaves. I am neither poplar nor rose. Why shouldn't I sink too? Probably written shortly before her end, her approaching death was apparent to her. Only the thought of her mother left behind gave her the deepest sorrow. Gekämpft hat meine Barke. My boat has battled wild waters. I can see heaven. I cannot avoid you, death. The end of my suffering is the start of my mother's agony. Mother, don't be sad too long. The sea of death will only divide us for moments. When I arrive, I shall wait on the shore to help you land. She died writing poetry to the very end, on the 19th of November, 1825, in her 17th year. Among her late verse is the remarkable A Vision After My Death, which she describes her own death. It's perhaps one of the most sublime masterpieces in all poetry. Thus she departed, as airy as an angel passing from one shore to another, but leaving behind her the luminous trail of a heavenly vision gleaming afar. Oh, so it's clear that Schumann really, really, really liked this girl. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, he also kept a portrait of her on his desk. Huh. So, a bit obsessive, really, isn't it? He loved her. He loved her. Um, <laughs> and it's easy to see why. I think they're wonderful poems. And it's a wonderful um, thing he did and quite unique uh, among the history of song and, and leader uh, to do this portrait of a poet's life in that way. The big question is why didn't. They take off as 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 poems. Why 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 is it we only know them through Schumann's th- work now? I think tragically, the the idea that Eric Sams had that that, that his later compositions were a, a a product of his mental decline and therefore substandard um, work was one that had you know very popular reception. And I think is that Eric Sams in a police car coming to get you? <laughs> oh no! Can you hear that? It's actually a fire engine. <laughs> I think it was a popular idea and it one that gained a lot of traction and so a lot of his later works for a long time were suppressed 
and uh-huh. sort of sidelined as work that was sort of tainted by his mental illness, which is a great shame. I mean, in, it's, in some ways, it's, it's important to know a composer's life so that you can have a context for, for the works, but sometimes it can, it can affect your judgment. I mean, Gurney's songs are a typical example. We all know that Gurney suffered um, shell shock. Absolutely, and and he he's. It seems he suffered um, a mental illness. Regardless, I mean, it wasn't. Uh, it seems that his the symptoms of, of um, uh, of mental unrest were there long before uh, he went to war, and they were perhaps exacerbated by that. But it it seems that all of Gurney's work was produced under the cloak of uh, of mental illness. But my my point is that we, you know, I think people too often are too quick to dismiss his his later songs, and and actually, and, and people now I think are starting to to reevaluate them and say, actually, no, these are there's some really great songs here that we've dismissed. Absolutely, and we don't we don't judge Beethoven's work um, because he became deaf, or say that his later work is poor because of his bad hearing if, if anything mm. they're elevated is his better work the ninth symphony is considered one of his greatest achievements um and you know broken ears are no different from a broken mind they are but i, I don't think he could tap it out on the table i don't think he could tap it out on the table either certainly not at the right speed <laughs> <laughs> This episode's recital features soprano Mary Lawson and pianist Eugene Astey performing at the Oxford Leader Festival on the 17th of October 2016. Enjoy! This episode is sponsored by Stone Records, independent classical music. For more information, visit stonerecords.co.uk. Oh, my God. 
Come on, my friend. 
that brings this episode to a close. Thanks very much for joining us. As ever, you can check us out on the Twitter at at Recital Room. You can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Recital Room. And we've got a website. It's recitalroom.co.uk. And you can find out more about the episodes and the different performers on them there. And we'll hope to be back before long. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. That's just one interpretation. Everybody sings and plays the same And I was going to say Ben Nelson. <laughs> <laughs> Copyright 2017, Recital Room Productions Limited.